You're listening to Artistic Finance, show 159. On today's show, we discuss resource sharing in theater design and production. My guests are Executive Director of Philadelphia Scenic Works, Nathan Renner-Johnson, and Robin Stamey, Production Manager at Rutgers University. We discuss theater workers being paid on W-2 or 1099, scenic outsourcing and collaborations between theater companies, co-working spaces for theater makers from designers to performers, and we also talk about joining a collective of artists or going the road solo. Without further ado, let's get to the show. You are listening to Artistic Finance, where we help creatives learn about the business of show business. Welcome and thank you for listening. I'm your host, Ethan Steimel. Today, I welcome Robin Stamey and Nathan Renner-Johnson to the show. Welcome, you two. We're recording this December 4th, 2023, just so everybody knows. I'd love to get some brief intros from you. So who are you and what do you do? And let's start with Nathan. Hi, uh, my name is Nathan Renner-Johnson. I am the executive director of Philadelphia Scenic Works. Um, We are a nonprofit scene shop in Philadelphia and serving the greater Philadelphia area. Um, yeah. Awesome. Robin? Hi, I'm Robin Stamey, and I am currently the production manager slash technical supervisor of the visual media and performing arts department at Rutgers Camden, and also a freelance lighting designer. Amazing. All right. That's a long title. Or, yeah. <laughs> okay. So just a couple fun questions I like to ask everybody at the beginning. What is a live event that you like to experience as an audience member? I mean... I love seeing shows, live uh, performances, productions, and though I haven't been to one in a long time, going to concerts as a live production a performance is also really great. If Florence and the Machine tours to Philly again, I'll go see them. Okay, amazing. You won't go somewhere other than Philly to see them? There are so many live performances happening in this area that unless I'm going somewhere and I, uh, so for instance, my husband and I, we're in London for our honeymoon, and we found that tickets to Moulin Rouge were cheaper there than when they toured to Philly. So since we were already in London, we went. We wouldn't make necessarily a trip just for that. That's amazing. That's awesome. All right, Nathan, what's a live event that you like to experience as an audience member? Oh, I think the top of my list right now is Sleep No More because it's closing and I, I haven't gotten to see it yet. But um, yeah, I just love anything that's like distinctly theatrical, something that works well in a theater that you don't see in on movies or in in tv just like something that is really creative and imaginative yeah that's amazing i never saw sleep no more and now you know how broadway hd like films shows i wonder if they have sleep no more because i don't actually want to go see it in the live <laughs> but i wonder how it would come across like filming wise it would be a different experience that's that's something that a new parent does to you you're like do i do i really want to leave the house <laughs> <laughs> Amazing. All right. Uh, now another fun question. I'll start with you, Nathan. Are you good or bad with money? I think that I'm okay with money when I when I take the time to focus on it, you know, but when life gets in the way, all of a sudden you're like, oh, I really should be thinking about this more. How about you, Robin? Yeah. I mean, similarly, my husband and I are trying to make it so that we have our money sort of automated, which is hard being freelancers. And also both Nathan and I work with budgets for our jobs. So we have to be at least we know how to use it, whether we do it in our personal lives is a different question I would imagine. It's also, you know, we're living in capitalism. How can we good? How can we be good or bad with money in that? <laughs> yes, I love it. <laughs> um, okay, so today we are sort of want to talk about the topic of, or answer the question, uh, answer, we'll see about that. Um, but can we uh, address an industry's financial issues through resource sharing and collaboration? And the industry is theater. And the resource sharing and collaboration is a tricky thing because every production is its own entity. And then collaboration is... We're all individuals working together on something, but we're hopping from thing to thing to thing. So it's sort of a hot, you know, hodgepodge industry getting shows up and and, and running. But uh, Nathan, you are running a nonprofit or involved with a nonprofit scenic construction production company. Um, Rob and I have you here because you had a co-working space for designers a while back. It doesn't exist anymore, but I want to ask questions because... 
our last episode, we did it uh, at LDI Trade Show, and we were talking about the cost of software for freelancers. And the cost, specifically, I'll throw out Capture, is like a previous software. Well, if you want a real seed of it, it's like $3,000. Um, and then Vectorworks is the other big one that's, I think, roughly $3,000 for the initial pur- purchase. And now they're switching to a subscription model, but it's still 150 bucks a month. So they're expensive things for individuals, especially freelancers in theater, to have access to. So I'm interested in that design space because there are other ones like it. Nathan, let's start with you in Philadelphia Scenic Works. Just tell us about it. What is it? What's its story? Yeah, absolutely. So Philadelphia Scenic Works started back um, in 2016, 2017, um, when a small commercial scene shop that was serving a lot of the small theater companies in the area decided to close operations because the the person who was running it uh, was having a baby and he wanted to be a stay-at-home dad as opposed to spending 60 plus hours a week building scenery. And so the theater companies who relied heavily on his, um, his talent and his shop space uh, came together and said, how can we make this thing continue to work and serve our companies um, in maybe a way that is a little bit more long-term and, and, and collaborative and, communi- and, and community-oriented? And so they, they developed this nonprofit structure for it, fundraised money to be able to buy the tools from that shop and to get a new space, and created Philadelphia Scenic Works with that sort of as the main goal of supporting these companies, but with sort of these other side ideas around how this shop could um, have educational programming to help kind of bolster the community, could really um, invest in resource sharing by providing a pool of hardware or stock flats or stock material, maybe even props that, that different companies could use in a lot of ways serving as sort of the uh, scene shop for a large company that might have multiple spaces might function. Um, but instead, we're talking about a number of small companies that are spread across the city um, and and rely on this one shop because all these companies were doing really excellent work and really expecting high levels of production support, but didn't have the capacity to support a full-time shop, often of multiple people um, on their own when they're only doing two or three small productions a year. The shop um, has been around since then. It was working really as a part-time shop uh, until COVID started and then obviously COVID hit and then it was really part-time. And since then we've been working on getting it back up and running in 20, I think, early 2022, we were able to switch to a full-time model with full-time staff. We're now up to five full-time staff members, myself, a technical director, an assistant technical director, a lead carpenter, and uh, a lead scenic painter. And then we hire other overhire as as needed. In the last couple of years, we've done about 30 projects a year. This fiscal year, which is coming to the mm-hmm. coming to about halfway done now, we've already done about 30 projects this year. So we've almost doubled what we've done in the past. Um, so we're, we're really um, rocking and rolling we're really trying to figure out how we can support this industry from this side of things to make this part a little bit more sustainable, a little bit more collaborative, and just sort of basically essentially strengthen this this wing of the, the industry in general. Yeah, make it so that if somebody becomes a father, they don't have to quit this. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And there's a lot of effort on our part to try to figure out how we can both meet the needs of the companies and meet the needs of the employees who are working for us because a lot of what was happening beforehand and still happening to some to some aspect, the companies were, especially these smaller companies, were relying on freelancers to do the work, but the freelancers are r- rushing, hustling, um, working crazy hours, non-sustainably, and burning out, and there's such a high level of turnover, which again, is still happening. But we're trying to sort of fight back on that and say, how can we decrease the turnover so that people can have healthy, sustainable, fulfilling careers and lives um, and keep that expertise and that knowledge in the industry, in the in the city, because we were seeing so many people leaving the city, leaving the industry. They're going to either to a different city or a, a more commercial job and leaving theater entirely, which meant that a lot of this institutional knowledge and a lot of this investment was really not sticking around. And so we're trying to figure out how can we maintain that and keep that going. And, and we're doing that through investing in the workforce that, that's doing the work. It seems like you fell into the nonprofit version to get it started. Why nonprofit versus commercial scene shop? What Are there advantages for you for doing it nonprofit versus just sort of doing it commercially? Yeah, I mean, the big advantage, obviously, is that, that the nonprofit doesn't have to pay income tax. Um, not that we're making an income right now anyway, but um, we're really, you know, it, it sort of goes along with our model. Like, we're not interested in making any top-level owner or person rich. We're interested in investing all of the money back into the community. This organization exists to support the community. And so we're we're really trying to find ways to do that. And, and of course, as a nonprofit, we are able to take uh, donations and, and a lot of foundation support can come that would not be available to us uh, if we were a commercial shop. So those help to underwrite some of the, the overhead operating costs and keep it affordable for the companies while still paying people reasonable fair living wages. Okay. And you mentioned 30 productions already this fiscal year. Are all of those nonprofits that you're helping or are there like, can you do commercial work 
as a nonprofit? Yeah, we can. There's something that is a little bit, um, I'm not the expert on it to be able to explain it, but there's something called unrelated business income. So if we're doing work outside of the arts industry, our, you know, our mission, we have to stay within our mission. Our mission is to support the arts industry in the greater Philadelphia region. Primarily, that's working for nonprofits and supporting art nonprofits, but that goes beyond theater. You know, we're doing work for the Flower Show this year, which is the Philadelphia Horticultural Society as well as we've done other stuff for the Fairmount Park Conservatory. We've partnered with Mural Arts on um, a project. So there's other nonprofits that are not theater nonprofits that also sort of expand our work. And we can take on commercial projects here and there, and those certainly do help to underwrite the costs. We just have to make sure that it's not the majority of what we're doing. We're not focusing on it. I won't get into like the specific tax stuff because I'm probably not the best person to explain it. But um, yeah, the vast majority of our stuff wants to be, wants to be supporting, be mission-based and supporting the, the community that we're here to support. Yeah, that's wonderful. I'm also wondering, it seems like you're very well organized, but is this a sustainable model? You know, like in one year, will you be here or in five years, will you still be here doing this? I sure hope so. (laughs) Um, We're still working. I think we still feel very much like we're in startup phase and we're working towards getting to a certain scale. You know, as we look at our projections and we run our numbers, it really is something that in order to be able to support the size of the company that we're trying to support these small companies, we really need to be working at a certain scale, having a certain number of projects. That's why growth is so important to us. Because if we're if, if we're basically functioning as a scene shop for one or two small companies, it's not sustainable, which is why they don't have their own scene shop. Um, so we really need to be getting to a scale where we can be having multiple projects going at the same time. We're working on, on many different things down the line. And the only way we're going to be able to do that is by being super organized. Because right now we've got seven or eight, I'm looking at my, my whiteboard, we've got seven or eight productions that are all loading in within the next month and a half, and different people are working on different ones at different times, and so we're trying to balance all of those, all the rentals from different things, um, to be able to take advantage of the, the shared resources. So it is definitely a logistical game, but you know that's sort of the, the nature of the business. Okay, just a couple more questions before I jump back over to Robin. How many, because you're doing 30 productions, how many people are you employing full-time? And what are their roles? Like, are they carpenters, et cetera? Of the 30 productions that we've done or the 30 projects that we've done, because some of them are not all theatrical productions, they're not all full scale. We're going to build it, load it in, strike it. Um, some of them are just a rental of, our, of, a, of a portion of our space so that their staff can build it themselves and use our tools. Some of them are, uh, they've had existing scenery that they brought to us. We painted it and gave it back to them. Some of it has been just build it and we'll deliver it and then they install it. Some of it is just rental stuff. So we'll pull it, they'll take it and install it themselves and we don't do any carpentry or paint on it. So it's a it's a wide range of the kind of work that we do for each individual company. But that is intentional because we're trying to find ways to support companies even if they don't have the price point to be able to match sort of full scale services where we do everything from A to Z, although we can. Um, our full-time staff is a, a TD who is sort of 50% building and 50% costing, drafting, scheduling logistics, an ATD who is is almost entirely on the floor and and working on builds, Um, a lead carpenter who's also on the floor, and then a lead painter. And then we hire over hire for paints and carpentry as needed. Generally, we've got one to two over hire here every week, um, but it kind of goes up and down based on availability and need. One of the really exciting things about PSW is that in addition to being able to hire some people full-time and have that full-time work, the part-time employees are also freelancers who are going from other job to other job. And so we can help fill in the gaps for those freelancers when they're not when they don't have another job on the on the on the docket, and by being organized, we can make sure that we always have projects for them when they're coming to us, allowing them to have a more consistent and more sustainable working model. Yeah, I freelanced in New York for ten years, and I worked for a company called the Lighting Design Group, and that's sort of what I would call my Philadelphia scenic works. It was like between the theater gigs, this is where I could go, um, and it was it was fairly reliable, you know, depending on time of year and all that. Cool. Okay, so I think I heard four full time people in there. Yeah, and me. And you, what's your involvement? You're the, cause I thought you were on the board or what is your role? Uh, yeah, I was on the board. I'm now the executive director. I do everything that isn't building and painting the scenery. So marketing, human resources, payroll, development, accounting, you know, some production management, logistics support. So really everything beyond the actual scenery. Amazing. Awesome. Um, and also I'm just throwing this out. You mentioned TD and that 50% of the time is drafting and all that. I think that sometimes surprises people when they see the TD and it's like, where are they? Why aren't they in the shop? And it's like, well, they get all the drawings and all things and they have to communicate how to build it. And that takes a lot of like desk work to figure that out. Yeah. And because we're, you know, we're an independent shop. So we do a lot of quoting and costing things out for companies who ultimately don't go with us. So there's, there's a lot of 
work that just goes into sort of telling people how much their their project is going to cost um, before we even get to the point of uh, a green light and starting to plan the build. Yeah, amazing. Um, all right, Robin, your co-working space, which was called the Philadelphia Design Center, what was that? Um, and just tell us about it. So the Philadelphia Design Center was a project of Partners for Sacred Places, which is a nonprofit based in Philadelphia. They believe they work nationally to pair up artists with sacred places. Well, to pair up partners for sacred places, there's then a division that works specifically with artists and sacred places. And the person in charge of that division is Karen DeLossi. Um, And she used to work for the Philadelphia Theater Alliance when that was in existence. And her husband is a lighting designer and uh, now actually works for Vectorworks, oddly enough. She she was a director and stage manager as well. So she deeply understood the need for designers to have a space where they could gather, where they could use shared resources and where there could be literal space for things like similarly philadelphia scenic works offers a space for companies to build a show if they needed to the philadelphia design center had a costume shop portion of their space where you could use a cutting table sewing machines washer dryer etc as well as 10 computers that had various lighting design and some sound design um, software on there and vector works, which can be used by scenic designers as well. There was also Adobe Creative Cloud memberships. So if you wanted to projection design or if there was a film or anything like that, that could be used. It was a project of Partners for Sacred Places. It was never its own entity. Then in January of 2020-ish, the timelines are a little fuzzy that for those years, right? We, we remember it all well and also try to forget. Exactly. Partners decided that they no longer wanted to fund the Philadelphia Design Center. It was grant funded. Some seed money came from the Knight Foundation, in fact. Then it was also funded by membership fees. So another nonprofit organization in Philadelphia offered to take it over. They had space. They do a similar co-space sharing thing in South Philly for dancers. So dancers can be a member of the space and get a certain number of rehearsal hours in a building because not all dancers can afford a building on their own, but they need to be able to dance in a space that is designed for that. The week before COVID shut everything down, we had gotten all the computers set up. Vectorworks had just delivered our computers because they donated the computers and the software, which was incredible. There was no other way that this design center could be sustainable really without corporate help covid shut it down and then the industry suffered greatly i do think that there could be a way that a version of the design center could come back but it would take an awful lot of effort and there's no seed money for it right now so either the people who were starting it up again, because I would love to start this stuff again or start leading it again, but there's no money to support that. So it'd be volunteer time or it would be grant writing and then being able to start it up. It is unfortunate that it doesn't exist anymore, but it really couldn't have survived the pandemic, even if it had not just been dissolved from partners. How many years was it running? Um, It opened in like 2017-ish. It had really just started getting its footing. It was in a part of the city that was a little difficult to get to. So everyone, when they heard it was moving to the center part of the city, very accessible by many forms of public transportation, they were very excited about it. And then, you know. Gotcha. I, I don't know the Philadelphia art scene. How many designers were using the space? Or That's a great question. We, and, how re- and how regularly? Was it one-offs or repeat people? Mostly for the costume folks, they were pretty regularly using it. And there were anywhere from like two to five costume designers using the space in any sort of given time period. For lighting designers, sound designers, set designers, that also ranged anywhere from like two to 10. And it was a monthly membership cost. You didn't have to sign up for a certain number of months. You could just sign up for that one month because you know you had that job that needed Vectorworks. 
And so you can sign up for that. And it's not like you were locked in for a full year. Um, so it did vary. And roughly how much was membership? Depending upon how much time and, and or space you needed, it varied anywhere from 20 to 30 a month to 150, 200 a month, if I remember correctly. Nathan, you're nodding. So I hope. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I wasn't part of it, but it uh, comports with my memory. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Okay, this is interesting because I have an episode that's recorded and I don't know when it's going to release, but it's with the Sovereign Candle Collective, which is in New York City. And they're just lighting designers. They all came together and... Basically, it was like they just rented a WeWork or a shared space together. And it was like, hey, look, it's 2000 a month if we all put in 500. That's how it was born. And then it's grown into a whole other thing. But they have their space that they want to rent out to people on like an hourly basis for their previous studio. But it's not the model you're describing. It's very different because they're all full time in the collective. That's their thing. And this model is really interesting to pay your $30 or $50 a month and have access to a space that when you need to go in and use Vectorworks, you go in and use Vectorworks. Because that also solves a problem of everyone having to have all the softwares and all the things on their computers. It's not a problem. The problem is like, one, do you subscribe to all those things and pay for them? But also legally, we want the companies to make money. Like we want to pay for Vectorworks. We want to pay for these things. We don't want to use them for free. But when you're working in the theater industry, it's like paying $3,000 for something like that. It's crazy. But if you can subscribe to a seat, you know, for $30, $50 a month, that's, that's really great. And it's also a lot easier for the non the nonprofit theaters to then say that, oh, I can pay you a studio fee, which can go directly to your membership fee to the design center, if you want it to, because then it is a concrete studio fee. Whereas Philly has never really paid studio fees in the past, but it is common for New York designers and other folks to have studio fees. So that was a really concrete thing. Also, so many theaters don't have a washer dryer. They don't have ironing boards. They don't have a space for costume designers. They barely have a costume shop supervisor, if that, you know, very similarly to the TV problem. They don't have technical directors. They don't have a space for builds to happen. What I loved about the design center is that it was it sort of helped to sort of bridge a gap. Because if you're an established designer who knows you're going to do 10 shows in a year, you're going to be able to afford the Vectorworks cost, or at least you know that you've got to afford the Vectorworks cost to be able to, to do those 10 shows. But if you're someone who's coming out of college or you're young, you're a multi-hyphenate person who isn't going to be doing... 10 lighting design shows a year, you might do two lighting design shows and you're going to act in two shows and you're going to do whatever because Philly has a lot of those people who are really multi-talented and, and invested in many different ways. The design center allowed you to do just a little bit here and a little bit there without having to kind of make that full investment yourself, which was great. I, I appreciate that you just said multi-hyphenate because that's like the way the world is going in a way. And even on this show, I always introduce people and I sort of label them as something, even if they are multi-hyphenate. <laughs> um, but that's a real thing. Maybe, yeah, you're a projection designer and you're going to go do lighting design for just one show a year or something. Well, do you really need all those lighting design tools? Yeah, and then also the, the people coming out of school, another advantage is the collaboration. Because as designers, I think it's a very, very lonely industry. It's like, I, you know, I do work with the same people over and over again. But at the same time, I only see them when I'm on the job. I only see them during tech. The rest of the time, I'm at my computer, drafting this show, reading the script, doing all that. Having an actual place to go and meet other people, especially if you're younger, it's like, oh, great. I found some like-minded people <laughs> super easily just, and, and while I'm working or while I'm getting my work done. And we also ran programs and workshops and mentorships. We also had an event where theater companies came and saw designers' portfolios, but had to sell themselves as why we needed to work for the theater company as opposed to why do you need to hire this designer? Um, and it was all BIPOC and queer lighting or not lighting designers, but designers of all kinds. Well, and then another another thing is, you know, if we all have a New Year's resolution and um, we're like, oh, we want to band together and form a design studio or shared space or something, you know, you're locked into like a year long lease if you do that with two or three other people. But with this sort of subscription model, it's like, oh, I can be like, oh, I don't have a lot going on in February. That's when I'm going to like get all my drafting done or I'm going to get my paperwork done or I'm going to do these. So I'll subscribe for a month or two and then I'm not locked in or stuck with a bunch of people. Or let's say there's somebody in the studio that we don't like and it's like, well, they're here a lot. So I'm going <laughs> to cancel my subscription for a couple months until they go on tour and then I'll return. 
it was also open 24 seven. So you could go in whenever you wanted. It wasn't just business hours. That's huge. And then the other thing is you were talking about studio fees. Well, I've, I've never had a studio fee. I didn't know that was actually a thing. Makes sense. But kit fees, I understand of like, oh, I'm going to bring in my tools. There's a kit. And I've never charged a kit fee because anytime I bring something in, I'm always like, well, this is to make my life easier and blah, 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 blah. But the union is starting to put out feelers asking people, hey, do you charge kit fees as something to incorporate? But that's a good point because it's like as a freelancer, there are all these overhead costs that sort of just have to get dealt with. Like you have to figure a way to deal with it and throwing it into a writer, throwing it into your contract is a good thing and a good practice. And if you have that subscription that is like, hey, every everybody knows that the freelancers in Philly all go to this studio and they all have this $50 fee that we have to add on. If that sort of becomes a standard and expected thing, this having a receipt or say, look, it's an actual thing. Here's the here's the actual thing, the tangible thing that we need. I see that being like a really helpful thing too. Sorry, this is a, t- a little bit of a non sequitur, but without a kit fee, you know, I, I'm not the most, I'm most familiar with the Lort contract for USA. And there are provisions in the Lort contract for designer reimbursable expenses. And I would always encourage my designers to utilize that to the max of, of you know reasonableness that they could because that's money that we had to budget anyway. You know, we were fine paying for a chunk of your Vectorworks subscription if that's the only thing that you could allocate towards it. But I mean, I think that those things exist already. And I think that getting realistic about what those costs actually are is really important. Or we start putting designers on payroll and provide them with the materials that they need to do this. Each theater company could have a Vectorworks subscription and then their designers could use that. Why is the burden have to be on this, this freelancer who is then also getting taxed on top of it all? I mean, there's so many questions about the current structure. There are ways we can survive in the current structure or we could dream of a new structure that could maybe even be better. Nathan, my next question is, how can... Philadelphia Scenic Works, how can it be helpful for freelancers? Because you've mentioned between gigs, is that its strongest advantage? (laughs) Yeah, I think there's a couple of those. I mean, there are definitely some freelance part-time employees that we have who basically give us their schedules and they say, hey, here's when I've got free time. And we say, great, we'll take you here, 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 here. And it provides a little bit of income for them in between time. I hope that Philadelphia Scenic Works is really helpful for our freelance set designers that we work with because it helps to provide some level of consistency. You know, they work for four different companies, but all those companies use PSW. Then they're used to working with the same shop over and over again. So they've got that rapport. We can save them time in terms of having to like learn how each individual shop works differently. I do have dreams of sort of like stealing some of Robin's ideas of the design center and incorporating them into, into PSW and sort of a shared hub of sorts. I think also just the aspect of like, knowing that we're here and it's like, oh, you have this really complicated or difficult or time-consuming thing that is part of your design. Like we can we can sort of take that off your plate or we can take that piece of it off the plate even if you're not going to do the whole the whole set is also a way that um, we could be really helpful for set designers at least. Yeah. And also, are you working mostly with Philly local people? Because, you know, in this industry, like we're, as designers, we're working in all sorts of different places. Same thing with stagehands and stuff sometimes. Are you working with out-of-town people on these shows or are you, are they all Philly people? It's a mixture. I will say it's mostly Philly folks because most of the companies that we're working with are small enough that they're not really having the budget to bring in out-of-town designers. But every once in a while they do, and we get to work with some folks from out-of-town, yeah. Yeah, the financial feasibility of this industry <laughs> as freelancers <laughs> is uh, is a wild and crazy thing. Because even, even myself, I just became a father eight months ago, and now I'm teaching at a university because... That was sort of a way that I can raise this baby, <laughs> but like doing all the freelancing is a little challenging. I, I also like Robin, the design studio. I like, I like it. It's one of those things that has to be built and publicized and, and established f- for it to gain traction. That's exactly what we were running into is you have to sort of demonstrate the reason why it's good for a freelancer for them to then realize it's good for them. You are already doing so much work to find the next gig, to update your website, to do the actual work that if you've developed a system that works for you, why would you change that? Take a chance on some other space that may or may not be what you need. Maybe there is someone annoying working there next to you. And you're like, oh, well, I could have just stayed at home and done this on my own vector works, you know? Yeah, there's definitely questions about that. Yeah, because I'm just thinking if I were to transition to a shared space like that, it's like as in my brain right now, I could never live without Vectorworks on my computer. But 
I bet I could. <laughs> yeah. And we were working on a way where there were some shared licenses that could be on your laptop while you're on site. But it is also such a barrier for young designers to have to even buy a laptop that can run afterwards. There's so many barriers. We can't solve them all at once with only one sort of system, but we can help break down a little bit of that. But it does mean that, like you said, a whole lot of work that needs to be done ahead of time that is currently unfunded. Because also now I'm thinking there's another business model here of like, there's libraries all over the place, partnering with libraries that already have a computer. And is there a way to say, okay, give the key to Vectorworks over to this computer, you know, for uh, this week or something like that. Or I'm trying to think of, of spaces that are already available. Because I think what Nathan's tapping into with Philadelphia Scenic Work is like, oh, we have a space already. Is there a way that we can add more into that space to help more people? That's a really interesting idea. And like what Robin was was saying before, which is like you kind of need a host organization and preferably a host organization that's accessible that you can already get to because committing to a year-long lease or a multi-year-long lease is really difficult or challenging. And and having a, a host that can say, hey, here's a desktop or here's a here's a single desk at our space is a great idea. I actually am like now wondering like if some of our partners maybe could host a, a space or host a, host a desk for something like this where people can come in. And with the Design Center Studio, Design Center's location before, Robin alluded to that it was kind of difficult to get to on public transit. And no matter where you are in the city, it's gonna be difficult for someone. But if there was two or three or four locations that each had a desk at it or two desks, like maybe that would be much more accessible and convenient. And Philadelphia Scenic Work is only doing scenery, right? Yeah, we, we do some props, but that's about it right now. Yeah. Taking a break from the interview to thank our Patreon patrons, specifically the patrons that have continued to support artistic finance, even though our content has slowed down since our baby Theo arrived almost a year ago. Now, in credit to all of our patrons, every single one of you has continued to support us, and a few of you even upped your contribution in the new year. Nicole and I are immensely grateful for this support. So from the bottom of our hearts, thank you. We are absolutely thrilled that you continue listening as we do our best to produce new episodes. If you're listening and you want to support the show, the best way is on Patreon at patreon.com slash artistic finance. And now back to the show. Robin, you mentioned W2 and 1099, you know, putting people on payroll that that's another sort of how do we transition over to that because we we it's fairly good like assistants are very often on w2 now and so really it's just the designers that are looming on this 1099 situation so nathan with philadelphia scenic works do you you have your full-time people i assume those are w2 how about your overhire all of our full-time people all of our overhire everyone is on a is on a w2 the rare exception would be like if someone teaches a class for us for one day they might be on a, a 1099 um but other than that yeah everyone is an employee here at Rutgers, we're even trying to move towards making our designers on w2 instead of 1099 because we do tell them when to show up and what work they need to accomplish which is a big definition between the two. I always felt like designers and directors should be like half W9 and half, or half W2, half w, uh, 1099, because it's like you do this work on sort of independent time in the pre-production and the planning and all that kind of stuff. But then there, there hits a point where it's the start of rehearsals or tech or whatever that you do need to be there full time. And you're you, like you said, you're, you're being told when to show up. You have to be there at certain hours. You're using the tools on site. That's all W2 employee stuff. And, and yeah, that's OK. That's I've never even considered that going half and half because that is sort of the not it's a solution. Um, <laughs> the IRS does not like it. I will tell you that they do not understand that you could be essentially a contractor for one thing and then an employee for something else. They're like, oh, you're hiring this person. They must be doing the same thing. You're just trying to get out of paying their payroll taxes and unemployment and all of those things. Which is sort of true. <laughs> well, no, it's not sort of. That's true. And <laughs> this is why the unions are established in the way they do their contracts is because they have to make up for those people not paying those things. As someone who is newly running a business that from like the top level, I can tell you there, I don't agree with it, but I certainly understand why someone would be led in that direction because there are a lot of things that are necessary for employees versus 1099s, just sort of business bureaucracy and, and on top of all the different fees and the money and stuff like that. So it's, it is complicated. I do think it's the right thing to do, but um, I can, I can, I can sort of understand why someone may go in that direction. 
Oh, no, I 100% understand why. It's way easier to pay on 1099, way easier. <laughs> um, but again, it's not the right thing because the way protections work, you're more protected over so many things with W-2, and it's out of your hands. Like 1099, you can mess up your taxes. W-2, good luck. You know, they only mess up on the taxes if, if you don't turn it in or something. So yeah, but that's a whole, that's not like, that's a whole other discussion. Cause I had somebody on, we did a whole episode and my question was basically, how do I, as a freelance designer who once or twice a year hires an assistant, how do I pay that assistant on W2? The answer is it's like, it's more costly. It's more whatever. It's not really worth it. And obviously it's easier to pay on 1099, but to do the right thing, <laughs> it is possible and it should be done. It needs to become common practice in order for everyone to do it. The right and and the legal thing too, right? Like that's it's also the law. <laughs> and and one of the things that's always confused me is that like independent contractors, this is the whole issue with Uber, right? They can't collectively bargain. And yet there is a union of designers who have collectively bargained. And so there's this like weird dichotomy situation going on that really shouldn't be happening. Yeah, yeah. Nathan, talking about sharing resources, I know you're working on multiple projects, so it's potential that you can like reuse some scenery here or there. Are you able to reuse Recycle? Especially at the price point that we're working with, where folks are really interested in, in getting as much value for the least amount of money as possible, we're, we're reusing a lot of sort of standard building blocks, flats, platforms, things like that. Good quality scenic treatment is not cheap, so a lot of their cost still is, is paint work. But some a lot of the base costs of building the scenery and paying for the materials we can avoid by doing doing like low cost rentals. But in terms of like hardware, I mean, definitely thinking like expensive things like triple swivel casters and you know hinges and track and things like that. You know, we can loan that out to a show for the three week run that they have and get it back in in essentially the same condition. Which means that those companies are avoiding having to both pay for that upfront and also figuring out where to store it. And we can sort of get a lot of more bang for our buck than than an individual company can for sure. Yeah, and I'm thinking with the the co-working space, you know, it's like the computers eventually have to get replaced. Yeah, and and at that point, they were all donated. That's how it worked. And I want to highlight that because you said Vectorworks donated the computers. Because in the theater community, there's a little grumbling against Vectorworks just because it's, you know, one of our costliest softwares. But that being said, it's really good software. It's very useful. And it employs people. So you said your husband works for Vectorworks. Well, that makes me feel good because it's like... Uh, no, Karen, the person who started the design center, now her husband works for Vectorworks. Oh, Karen, Karen's husband works for Vectorworks. But that's a good thing because I'm like, oh, here I've been paying my $570 a year for 10 years. Right, and right. oh, there's an actual person that I've been paying. Like, there that's is. good. Yeah. Uh -huh. <laughs> and then yeah. also like the computers being donated. It's like, okay, good. Here, I've been paying for this. And now like they're a good company. And the agreement was that we would continually receive their old training computers. So we would not have nicest, newest Mac, but we would have the computers that needed to be replaced in Vectorworks training lab over the course of the next, however long the agreement continued. Um, Vectorworks did really, really commit to trying to really help make this work. And so hopefully something can come of it. Yeah, amazing. And when was the, was there anything more to it other than just the shared space with the computers? Were there any other resources that were shared? Uh, well, there were there was the shared space with the costumes as well. Shared space as far our shared resources as far as networking too, um, and shared pay transparency. Ah, we asked all of the organizations who wanted to participate in the designer showcase what they paid their designers, what their minimum was, what their maximum was. So designers could go, okay, well, I'm going to throw my resume to this theater company, but not this theater company. And then we all also shared pay transparency among ourselves, sort of unofficially, to make sure that theater companies were not saying, oh, I'll pay you this, but I'll pay you that, which did happen. That did happen and does happen. Because I, I remember once I ran into something where it's like, Somebody got an assistant, and but then the other designers didn't. And it was like, well, how come that person got an assistant? It was like, well, they asked for it. And it was like, oh, anyway, it's like, that's not what. So I suffered through without an assistant. And yeah, so I love that pay transparency. Yeah, I love the idea that a portfolio review or showcase every year with pay transparency from those attending that sounds like a beautiful thing. <laughs> I really like that. I really enjoyed putting it together. 
Yeah. And then I unofficially have done paid transparency too, where I just ask fellow designers and stuff like that. But it's a lot of legwork and it's such a weird topic that some don't like to share it, which is crazy to me. Luckily in Philly, we don't run into many people who are shy about sharing how much they're making, which is I appreciate. I think the only disadvantage to that is if there's some sort of like where the theaters are like, oh, well, we can take the highest paying and the lowest paying and let's merge it into like this middle. So then nobody's pushing the forward envelope. But it, but that's theaters. So there's so many organizations. I don't know that that can actually be organized anyway. I will say as someone who's tried to organize theaters around re- other sorts of resource sharing, what's the term for that? Like fixing the pay across like they're no, they're not that no one's that coordinated. <laughs> like, I mean, they, may, they might, they might chat a little bit in back channels, but no one's that coordinated to like figure out like, all right, how are we going to like keep the man down? It's like, no, we just want the best people for, for, you know, honestly, like the least amount of money, which is, you know what it is. But, and, and honestly, it's the existing theatrical unions that do keep pushing and that benefits everyone. Actors equity keeps pushing, keeps raising USA, IATSE even like, because we have those that groundwork, we can really use that as a basis for freelancers who are not represented by any union as well. Yeah, amazing. All right, I feel like I'm going to start to wrap this up. And I want to ask this question before we go. And that is like for Philadelphia Scenic Works, people listening to this, Nathan, what do you want them to take away um, knowing about that? Yeah, I mean, I think in terms of in terms of resource sharing and collaboration, you know, I was thinking just to sort of answer the question that we started with, which is like, can we solve our problems with it? Uh, you know, I think the answer is is sort of yes and no. I think as a theater industry, like we are not going to be able to solve this by ourselves. Like there just isn't enough money amongst ourselves to do the kind of art that we're being expected to do. And what we really need is support from foundations and from the government and from outside sources to bolster that kind of work. And in a lot of cases, we're getting it. You know, it's not as much as we might want, but there are foundations supporting this work. There are people supporting this work. There's government supporting this work. Um, We just want more of it um, to be able to do more of it. And I think as as a community, as a Philadelphia community, like I think we can solve some of our financial issues if we support our support our industry a little bit more and in a smarter, more collaborative and coordinated way. But it, it's going to need the people on both the patron side and the producer side, I guess I would say, doing it together. Yeah. And for anybody listening who thinks, oh, I want to start a Philadelphia Scenic Works in my city. <laughs> like, do you have any advice for them? Like, would it just be uh, reach out to Nathan and ask questions? Um, or is there something you people should know? Yeah, reach out to me. Obviously, um, you know, we're online, www.philadelphiascenicworks.org. But also just make friends and, and be a good person because this work really relies on like collaborating with other people. And the whole point of it is to is to work together. So, what, you know, maybe there's a, a theater company that's only a summer stock and they've got a shop that you can use or vice versa. Find the ways that you can maximize on the resources that are not being utilized, because I think that's sort of the only way that something like this can work. Yeah, a lot of brute force. <laughs> you have to be very, very driven <laughs> and maybe have some lofty goals in order to, to get this going. Some sort of coffee subscription. I don't, you know. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Step one, coffee every day. Uh, Robin, for people listening to this who are saying, oh, this shared co-working space, because this, th- what you described is a sort of a new idea model to me. I hadn't really thought of it this way. And I, I had always thought of like the individuals sort of doing it, but this is almost like building it for the individuals to find. If anybody's listening to this and saying, oh, I want to give that a shot, or I think something's there, do you have any advice for them? Yeah, I mean, reach out to me. I'm happy to talk with anybody about ideas or anything like that. But also, it's just remembering that the arts are a job, and they should be valued as such. It's it's really important that wherever you're trying to make this happen, that not only are the designers or the people that you're trying to help on board with this, but as Nathan very much said, it's the producers and the patrons that also need to be on board with this. We can't participate in the live arts in a vacuum. It is really important to make sure that, because it's easy for us to inherently know why it's important. It's a lot harder for us to articulate why it's important. And so to really think about how you can not necessarily convince people, but show them the light. Well, and I think that arts being a job, I think that's an important point to stress for people because it's like, well, there's art as a hobby and there's art as a career. And we're sort of talking about the art as a career. People need this help, need to be able to sustain 
versus let, letting all theater be amateur theater or letting all, all theater be unsafe theater or um, everybody's always exhausted theater. Um, how do we make the full career time <laughs> theater people sustainable? And allow them to have families and have health insurance and all of those things. Yeah. I'm also really interested in this as a, like a total tangent, but I, on that line, on like sort of destigmatizing theater as a hobby or as a secondary passion or as not a full-time career. Cause I feel like there is sort of this, this sort of look down on people who are like, Oh, well they went to school for this, but then they couldn't make it into a full-time career. And so now they, they just do community theater or, you know, this, th that kind of like stigmatization of it as like less valuable. But in fact, most people, I know are sort of doing multiple things or hustling in multiple different ways. And I, I think like if we were able to more successfully destigmatize people who are not doing it in a full-time way, that actually gives, I don't know, it just gives the whole thing more value and not that, and I don't know. I mean, it, it, it allows for people to kind of build the, the career or the life that they want for themselves and not the one that they think they should have or the one that they think is like the only way to be legit. If we could do that, then actually we might, have a more healthy ecosystem and have more opportunities for people who do feel like they need to be doing it as a career and more opportunities for people who feel like, oh, you know, I would be totally happy just doing this in the evenings or the weekends. But if it weren't for someone telling me that that's not like real or that I'm not good enough in some way. Well, that's a conversation going on in, in my household. There's talk about me becoming a full-time dad. So we start going down this role, this road and it's like, okay, and I'm thinking, and then I'm thinking, well, I could still do two shows a year. And then that would feel like I'm still a lighting designer. I'm still a theater person, but it's like such a weird thing. It's like, why am I worried about, cause I'm like, if I stay at home for five years and then come back, how, you know, is it going to be hard for me? How's that going to work? But I'm like, how do I make the persona of what I should be? Like, I should be a lighting designer. Like what's the minimum that I can do every year to get by <laughs> and, and still be that. Yeah. You can still be a lighting designer and adapt. A hundred, a hundred percent. And like that may open up a couple opportunities for people who would not have other, otherwise have them. Cause you know, you're doing fewer shows. And like, so maybe that's good for the ecosystem in general. And for you, by finding that balance that works for you, it may also help someone find the balance that works for them too. And shouldn't be delegitimatized because you're just a dad or, yeah, you know, in quotes, I'm, I'm air quoting for the, the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay. Uh, actually, Robin, one more thing, which is in your capacity for the design studio, was that a full-time thing for you? Was that a side project for you? If you were to get one going again, would it be a side project for you? It was a 20-ish hour a week commitment, which was not enough time. That was not enough time to market it. That was not enough time to have the conversations about why this is important and why you should be a member. And then also, you know, make sure that the bills are paid and the heat is on and the washer and dryer still work and all of those things. And the supplies are still supplied. In my life right now, I couldn't devote full-time work to it because I do enjoy my work at the university. But I would happily devote some volunteer time at this point to get it back up and running. But I couldn't do it alone. I would definitely need probably a collective of folks. And just to add to that, like, I think that that's the other piece of this that I, there's ample room for some sort of like collaboration and resource sharing around is the administrative structure to run organizations, whether it be something like the Design Center or Philadelphia Scenic Works or a theater company. It's like a lot of work to just make sure that the bills are paid and that people are paid and that whatever facility you have is operating uh, effectively. And if there are ways that we can sort of better connect those dots and collaborate on those things like that's the stuff that no one really wants to do that much of you know people want to focus on the art and so if we could figure out how to like collaborate on those things we might actually open up some room for for more money to be spent on on the fun stuff yeah and that's actually one of the reasons why this podcast exists is because i opened up an llc once because people told me that's what i needed to do blah 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 uh, in hindsight i was like no i didn't didn't need to do that but that being said, a lot of freelancers establish their sort of structure using an LLC and all this, but that drives me crazy. It would be great if there was an organization that could help you not form the LLC, be like, oh, here's how you get, here, here's how we can help you get organized. Because also there's this, um, I see like fractional CEOs or fractional board members where like your company can't afford to have the CEO for the whole year, or they don't need them for the whole year, but they need them for a couple months. If there was like a fractional business manager <laughs> um, in one of these resource sharing, like, oh, that's our person or that's our group that we go to for help with this. In in your membership, you get five hours with them once a month um, to help organize the receipts. So that way you don't have to worry about creating a system with an LLC or you don't have to worry about 
doing that because you can get that help um, without all the brain power and angst and late nights. Yeah, I like this. <laughs> yeah, and a, a dream that I never voiced about the design center was that it could also then be a pass-through to pay designers on W2 instead. The organization would pay the design center and then the design center would hire the employees and then there would be less of that administrative burden on the freelancers. Again, I could go on for hours about this, but I don't need to. But just me, you know, tangenting too, but like on USA contracts, I would do project only agreements, but they have to get paid by a producer. And sometimes I would be working for these small shows or whatever, where it's like the producer was a person and then they would have to write two checks for the pension and welfare. And then they would have to do all this stuff. And it's like, if there were, yeah, I always wanted like a middleman, like a middleman nonprofit to sort of help organize that. So that way somebody can do a small one-time gig or do a one-time, like a producer can do that without subscribing into the union infrastructure or the, all that. And, and those exist. They're very expensive. Yes. Yeah. Um, so the producers often choose not to do it. Yeah. But if it's a member-run co-op. Yeah. And part of me is like, I could rent a room and put 10 computers in it like, and get them donated and like do it. But oh, this is going back to you saying this would be more than it needs more than 20 hours a week to do it. So in my brain, I'm like, oh, this is a simple concept. But just from even running this podcast, I know that like this podcast is more than a full time job if it were to run successfully all the time. <laughs> so like it's these design co-ops. I don't know. There has to be a driving force, like somebody driving it um, and really being adamant about it, because if, if someone were to try to do it, they would get overwhelmed, even though all it is is a room with 10 computers. That's all it is. Like, there's nothing more than that. <laughs> but it gets complicated. So, okay, so we brought up a lot of um, challenges in the industry, specifically the theater industry and the designers, and throwing out some ideas here. This is all good stuff to think about. And Nathan, you know, you're, you're making a sustainable company here. Robin, you're raring to go to get a sustainable design studio back. <laughs> so last question, and then we can and go away, which is uh, where can people connect with you and who do you want to connect with you? Yeah, um, we're on uh, Philadelphia Senior Works is on online, philadelphiasenioworks.org. We're also have Instagram, Facebook, all that kind of stuff. Like I said, I do all the marketing. So I'm at the other end of all those emails and, and things. So feel free to hit me up. Yeah, anyone who's interested in this in this concept, whether you're thinking of starting it for your own city or whether you want to book work for Philadelphia Scenic Works or, or yeah, or you just want to know more. Um, yeah. For me, email is probably best. And my freelancing email is robin at sevenengines.com. Anyone who has any questions or thoughts about a collective space like that or wants to discuss page transparency or wants to just talk about the state of everything, happy to always do it. And in the age of Zoom, it's even easier. Awesome. All right. Well, thank you both for your time. I really enjoyed this chat. Um, So thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for having us. That's it for this week's episode. My takeaways are organizing a bunch of theater artists into a collective is a lot of work. It makes me grateful for the unions I interact with the most, IATSE for stagehands and USA 829 for designers. As we discussed resource sharing today, in particular the Design Center, it does make me wonder, can there ever be a successful co-working space for designers? Is this what coffee shops and libraries are for, for designers who don't have enough need for a workplace of their own? Is a co-working space something for a utopia but won't work in reality? If you know of a working co-working space for theater makers, email me and let me know. I'd love to hear about it. You can get to me at artisticfinancepodcast at gmail.com. Another takeaway I had is the resource sharing of scenery amongst theater companies. What Philadelphia Scenic Works does is share tools and build space more so than recycling scenery. Now, the Design Center was doing a similar thing for dancers in costume building space. Could lighting departments do the same thing? I know lighting designer Jamie Roderick in New York City used to have a storage unit with lighting resources like gobos and random leakos and cables that any designer could contact him and then grab for a show. Now, during COVID, that moved upstate, and I don't actually know if it returned down to New York City again. My final takeaway is the W-2 versus 1099 thing. It's still an issue, and it's great to get a perspective from a couple of people who are responsible for paying theater workers. 
Now, this is a sticking point for Robin, and I actually need to get her back for an entire new episode on this. But for anyone not understanding these points of contention, let me explain a little bit. So the Department of Labor classifies independent contractors using a six rule test. Now, this came under fire during 2020 when California passed AB5, which was an attempt to get rideshare companies to pay their drivers as employees on W-2 instead of independent contractors on 1099. Now, in 2021, the Department of Labor had instilled an independent contractor rule, which considered a multi-factor test to determine whether a worker was economically dependent on an employer. Those rules were... One, the worker's opportunity for profit or loss, depending on a managerial skill, which is a factor to assess whether a worker can increase profits through their efforts and negotiations with that potential employer. And if they can, this factor weighs in favor of independent contractor status. Rule number two was investments by the worker and the potential employer. So here, it's wondering whether the worker is making similar types of capital and entrepreneurial investments into the work as the potential employer is. So as a lighting designer, if I invest in my lighting equipment, am I doing so in a similar way that the theater company is investing in their materials? Three, the degree of permanence of the relationship. Well, okay, as theater designers, we go theater company to theater company. So that is definitely independent status. But for like a ride sharing company, you're working for that same company over and over. And even in theater, we often work for the same companies over and over. Number four, the nature and degree of the potential employer's control over the work. So this is a little confusing in theater, but the theater company does have to dictate rehearsals and certain things that have to happen by the designers. That sort of leads to an employee status. Number five, the extent to which the work performed is an integral part of the potential employer's business. So theater design, while the theater company may not necessarily know how to do lighting, They do need it in order to do their shows. So maybe there's an argument that, oh, we could do a show without lighting. Therefore, it's not our main focus. I don't know. Um, But again, that's sort of (laughs) you you be the judge. But uh, I feel like putting the parts of the theater together are integral to the theater company's existence. And number six, the worker's skill and initiative. So this one does favor independent contractors in that the work we do is very skilled. It's very specific. Uh, it takes years to learn lighting and implement it and do it over and over again. And it's actually a small world. There's actually not a lot of us. Yes, there are thousands, but in the grand scheme of 6 billion people on the planet, we are very, very skilled in that regard. So these six factors sort of determine whether somebody is an employee or a 1099 independent contractor. So in 2021, the Department of Labor rule gave greater weight to two core elements of these six the nature and degree of control over the work, and the individual's opportunity for profit and loss. That rule did not consider a worker's investment or whether the work was integral to the employer's business. Now, in 2024, in January, the Department of Labor has rescinded the 2021 ruling, and it now gives equal weight to all six factors, which to me means we're going to be seeing a lot of 1099 workers transferring to W-2, Obviously, as a theater designer, there is arguments for me to be on 1099 as nobody tells me how to do my job, but I also have to be there for a rehearsal, which is dictated by the theater company. True, I could skip rehearsal and have an assistant cover it, or I could pre-pro most of it, but that's not an ideal way to make light cues or to collaborate. So we'll see how this plays out in the next months and years, but it seems good to me to get more people on W-2 and get protections like unemployment, workers' comp, and social security taxes. AKA, the more social security taxes you pay, the more you'll receive in retirement. So this is a good thing in my opinion, sort of like compounding, but through social security taxing. Whereas if you're paid on 1099, you have a way to minimize your tax burden, AKA pay less social security taxes. But in the long run, is that the greatest thing? Some people might say yes, some people might say no. So we'll see how this all plays out, but that's just a little bit of explanation so that you can understand why Robin has all these sticking points. So what did you think of the show and any of these topics that we discussed? Let me know by connecting with Artistic Finance on the socials at Artistic Finance Everywhere. Find me on LinkedIn or directly email me at artisticfinancepodcast at gmail.com. 
Thank you once again to our Patreon patrons. You are why this show is on the air. The dad joke to end the episode has nothing to do with resource sharing, but here it is. Egyptian alligators that think they are crocodiles are living in denial. That's it for today. Until next week, break a leg. Thank you for listening to Artistic Finance, where we interview successful artists, leaders, and investors to help educate and inspire the creative community. To access our show notes and resources, go to artisticfinance.com. This show is for entertainment purposes only. Before making any decision, consult a professional. This show is copyrighted by Artistic Finance. Written permission must be granted before syndication or rebroadcasting. Music.